episode of the podcast. This time we are back in Kentucky. I've had the pleasure, well, I'm in my kitchen, but the podcast is in Kentucky. I've had the pleasure of interviewing several brethren now from Kentucky, um, including worship brother Dan Campbell, uh, Rich Hansen. But now I am not only with a distinguished, distinguished Mason, but author, uh, we're going to talk about his works, uh, John Bizak. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me as your guest, Cameron. I appreciate it. I got to say, uh, I'm very interested in, in what's behind you. I've never seen such a, a collection of square encompasses. Uh, are those all handmade or do you collect them on your travels? Uh, some are handmade. Some are um, from a collection I've had for years in my travels uh, around the country. I found them in trading posts which is what antiques or shop our shops are called out west um antique shops in new england uh, virginia and uh, various states a lot of people didn't even know what they had they were just items and uh, boxes yeah it's so important you know uh, well on the side of the mason um you know it's it's always so important that you know, you talk with, with your family or wherever it is about what to do with, with your belongings. Um, if not, then would you pass away? Because so often, uh, you know, uh, families will, will end up finding Masonic items from a relative, from a loved one, and they end up going to a pawn shop or historical shop. Um, I always, you know, remind guys, um, you know, make sure that you, you have a plan so that your Masonic items end up back at the lodge where, where they belong. But on the other side of it, if you are a Mason and you're traveling and you find your, you know, you find an antique shop or a pawn shop, check it out because you can find some pretty amazing things in there sometimes, some pretty amazing pieces of, of Masonic history. Absolutely. Any, um, do you have one in particular that's your favorite or that's a, an interesting story behind it? Uh, well, I've got uh, actually a room full of them here. Uh, there's no one that's my particular favorite. Uh, but I think the older ones, the ones that are um, made of brass, um, bronze, those are the ones that uh, took a lot of craftsmanship to create. And um, I have a mirror that has uh, many of the symbols of masonry surrounding the mirror that is about 140 years old. And while they are available today in plastic molds, the same design, actually, uh, this one is one of the originals, and uh, that kind of craftsmanship just has disappeared in this type of uh, item anyway. So uh, let's kind of get on to, I think, what will be the the majority of, of our conversation. You were very kind and sent me uh, two books, which you've written. Not the only two, by any means. Um, uh, we'll talk about where you can kind of where people can find your works, which I'd recommend any Mason to uh, to read and include in his Masonic library. Um, but you did send me two very excellent books, uh, Island Freemasonry, get that in there, and uh, Sins of Our Masonic Fathers. That's the one that I've been most interested in. Uh, and I heard about it. I was happy to finally get the chance to read it. Uh, not to bury the lead, but I guess we'll, we'll start with, with that. What in 
Well, first, where can people find uh, Sins of Our Masonic Fathers or any of your books if you want to order them? And also, what would you say was the main sin uh, of our Masonic Fathers? Well, all the books are available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, and other retail outlets, uh, as well as McCoy Publishing. Um, you just type in the name of the book. Yeah, it'll come up in a variety of locations. So it's widely available. Um, your question with regard of the primary sin, uh, first we have to understand that sin in this connotation is not something that's uh, um, an offense against a religion, but a miscalculation, an error, uh, something that had uh, rippling effects throughout masonry. And in the book, you'll find that there's um, roughly 12 that have been identified. But one of the ones that has always struck me as the most important is how we, in the past, have had uh, roughly five periods of rapid, unbridled, rapid expansion of membership and the chartering of lodges in American Freemasonry. And each one of those periods has been followed by a period of decline. The decline when examined suggests that because of the rapid influx of men, a lot of shortcuts were taken. Ultimately, men were not as instructed as closely in the fundamentals. And a lot of men were allowed into and admitted into the ranks of Freemasonry who really weren't pursuing Freemasonry as much as maybe some of the aspects of Freemasonry. Thus, they faded more quickly. There was a lot of suspensions for non-payment of dues, a lot of demits. And the fraternity became obsessed, almost a narcotic-like obsession, with trying to get more members, especially after the declines began after a rapid expansion. And that's never proven to be a sound strategy for an organization that's an all-volunteer organization to begin with, but one that doesn't educate its voters. And with less educated members, there's more confusion, as it were, with what are we all about? What is our purpose? And ultimately, we can see if we look at the factual history of American Freemasonry, not the romantic versions, but the factual history that our philosophies change about what our purpose, our historical aim and intent was of the founders of organized Freemasonry. And we've unmoored ourselves from that historical philosophical aim and purpose to the extent that many Masons believe our main purpose is to be a charitable organization. While that's an aspect of Freemasonry, it is certainly not the purpose of Freemasonry alone. Others believe it is a social networking organization, and that's a carryover from uh, multiple decades of concepts about what Masonry does. But the most harmful effect of that sin, as it were, is that over a period of time, particularly in the last 60 years, Masonry has fallen from the eyes of the public. And we no longer have an organization that's high on that prestigious perch that it once was. And that affects 
the awareness of uh, the candidates, potential candidates who come into the craft because we draw from the public. And if the public's less aware of us, less aware of what our historical intent and purpose is, if we do it less, what interest is it going to be for candidates in the future? Well, probably the interest is going to be small. And that's precisely what Freemasonry started out to be, a small organization of men who weren't seeking to be ordinary, but to uh, grasp some extraordinary in their life. And that really has proven not to be able to be possible by allowing anybody or as many as possible into masonry or making it particularly easy to become a mason. To what extent was the, the negative consequences um, uh, necessarily foreseeable? Um, you know, looking back at, you know, the two most recent boom periods of Freemasonry and the last two were, were the 1920s and the 1950s. Um, and that's certainly true in Ontario. Uh, in my understanding, the, the last year we had overall growth in the crowd was 1959. Um, but the, the extent to which society has, has changed so drastically, especially over the last... Um, uh, 10, 20, even 30 years, is it necessarily, you know, could, could uh, our Masonic fathers, do, do you think it was possible for them to have kind of uh, seen the, the dangers? Um, because I'm not sure... How much anybody could have predicted just how much things would change and, and how that affected every civic organization civic for lack of a better term whether it be masons or, or moose or elks or you know churches um there is that great book uh bowling alone i don't know if you read it bowling alone by by robert Putman. It, it's uh just the societal forces are are that that are that existed in 2021 and have existed for the last 30 years are so unique and in some ways they feel very adverse to to freemasonry and this civic engagement in general uh, you know i just wonder if how how looking back at, at the past if it would have been possible to kind of foresee some of these these challenges i don't think it was as foreseeable as it was inevitable when Freemasonry was first organized, it did spread and it spread quickly to Europe. And after spreading to Europe, the British Empire, of course, continued to spread as well. And it exported Freemasonry with them around the world. And the zealousness that was demonstrated by the men who became Freemasons was contagious. Uh, primarily, it might have been because it seemed to be an exclusive organization. And there were a lot of gentlemen's clubs prior to organized Freemasonry. The Freemasonry had a certain appeal to it, and it had been uh, promoted as being uh, ancient from time immemorial. And we know that it wasn't, but we know it had precepts and philosophies that were ancient 
and they were included in that. But I believe we might miss a point if we only consider that society has changed. If we only consider that uh, men today allegedly are too busy for Freemasonry. If we contend today that society has changed to such a degree that Freemasonry has lost its relevancy. Well, I think buried inside of some of that is some truth, but buried inside of that also is a major fault that we found in American Freemasonry. And that is that as membership began to decline, as it did prior to the depression, through the depression, regaining in the uh, early 1940s, and then went on a run until 1959 in America, then declined again and has for the last 60 years. But one thing Freemasonry has not been very good at is looking at the internal, not just the external reasons for why we have these shifts up and down. Now, interestingly, we find a lot of studies, we find a lot of uh, research that tells us what we should already realize is that Freemasonry is vulnerable and that its own members don't look at what we might be doing to be unattractive to each generation. Now, Roscoe Pound, who was a um, not only a legal scholar, but a, a Masonic scholar uh, in the early uh, 20th century, came up with the idea that we have to change with generations. We have to see, keep the, the core precepts of our craft. We have to keep the philosophies. We have to keep the fundamentals. We have to keep our principles, our values. But how we deliver them to each generation is bound to change because each generation will be influenced by its external environment. And so is Freemasonry. So I agree with what Putnam's book says. I agree with the, the ideas of, of what happened in America and society as we moved through the 60s and the, the attitudes and the values and the um, uh, change in, in what we held important and the drift we experienced away from enlightenment values, which is what Freemasonry is built on. But I don't agree with people who say that is the cause of the decline in membership, the decline in public awareness of Freemasonry. I believe what we do in a lodge and how we deliver the promise of Freemasonry has a lot more to do with the success of Freemasonry than counting the number of names on a membership roster. Uh, you probably know lodges that are, that are small who have a great deal of vitality to them. They may not draw 30 or 40 men a year, but they have vitality and they, they pursue the purpose, the historical intent and purpose of Freemasonry. And there are lodges with the hundreds. Uh, uh, there have been lodges in the past with more than 2000 members who really are not engaged in what Freemasonry is historically intended to be. So numbers alone don't define our success, whether they're high or low. It's the quality of what we pass on to each generation that can lead to something that's perpetual and for perpetuity.
when it comes to Freemasonry? Yeah, well, numbers are a tricky, tricky subject, right? They're, they're, it can be very easy. And I think we, we saw this in the 20s and, and you know, it, any boom period for any organization, really. It, it, it can be easy to use that as, especially if numbers are going up, as your, your metric of success. Right. Uh, while at the same time ignoring any other underlying uh, problems that you know may be creeping up on you it's no different than than uh, sports you know you may win a lot of uh, ball games but that doesn't mean you're the perfect team and it could be that the problems is it's not so much that you're winning because you're a successful team it's just the other teams are failing more right. and if you if you it, yeah, I think I do think numbers. I think the membership was one of those those things where any critiques of Freemasonry or how it was doing or the approaches it was taking, uh, grand lodges and lodges could always just point to the numbers and say, "Well, our membership's going up, therefore what we're doing must be working." Right? Right. But that's not in and of itself. There's there's many metrics, right? And membership is is one of many that you can use to to gauge the success of the craft. Well, I think if we look to Cameron at the research that shows us that as today, lodges in the past have rarely exceeded six to 10% of their membership being active and engaged in their lodge. Now that should tell us more than we just don't have a lot of guys who come to lodge it should be telling us and asking why don't we have a lot of people coming to lodge? Well, one answer might be is that we don't have the right mix of people and that they came to Freemasonry for reasons other than to pursue Freemasonry. Another reason might be is that something that sends shutters down the spines of grand lodges and leaders in the organization is perhaps we're just not providing what men are looking for. And that's one that takes some serious, speculation and some That's what, um, philosophy about that because when we do interview men who haven't been to lodge for months or years they say well I'm not, I'm not seeing any freemasonry i'm not seeing what i want i'm not getting what i want out of lodge so you know i'll keep my membership i'll pay my dues maybe it'll change one day there's got to be something more to that when it's a more broad answer than it is a rare answer. What is it that you think uh, men want from from Freemasonry? That is, you kind of pointed out the main struggle of of whether you're a worshipful master or or at grand lodge level, you know, trying to craft and put together a, a meeting. You know, at the back of your mind, you're trying to think, okay, what will draw attendance and, and membership back? Which, at the same time, I still have to get the work done and the bills have to be paid. So, so what do you think? What do you think our membership is looking for, and uh, how do you think we're not perhaps providing it to them uh, sufficiently? I don't know what the membership is looking for, but I can say what members I know look for, and I think that's the crux of of, of running 
uh, a successful lodge is determining what it is that the majority of the men who want to be active and involved in Freemasonry, what do they want? If they want to be a lodge that is uh, social and they, they, they know they have to go through ritual, they know they have to return some sort of a proficiency, they know there's certain things we have to adhere to, including our constitution and bylaws. But if they want to have just a social group, then be a social group if that will bring men together, because that's our purpose, right? To bring men together. If a lodge wants to do more than that, if a lodge wants to have some fellowship and some uh, uh, involvement in their community, let them do that. If men want to pursue Freemasonry on a more formal basis, and that's what the majority of a lodge wants to do, then the leaders of that lodge should be crafting their annual plan, their two-year, their five-year plan around what is it the majority of the people in this lodge want. And if the majority who are active and involved want that and the others don't, well, they should perhaps look for another lodge or if they just want to maintain their membership and be a, a casual mason, so be it. But I, I think men have to decide what the majority of their lodge members want. And you focus on that. And then if the leadership of that lodge doesn't agree with them, they can try to persuade them, try to educate them, or they too can go someplace else. Well, there's no lack of lodges in America, and I'm sure in Canada, as you know. So it's not like anybody's pigeonholed. And I think Freemasonry offers such a wide berth of interpretations as to what it's supposed to be, especially since we don't have any uniformity in what we teach. And we encourage men to speculate. We encourage men to do that on a very, on very little instruction and education, actually. So we know from the past that most of the respected and proven correct writers and leaders in Freemasonry have always said that Freemasonry will be what each generation wants it to be. And ultimately, that's how it's turned out. And each generation is made up of either rapid expansion members or a small group of men who are committed to masonry. So it's a tough question to say what masons want uh, because we've got so many who may not really be masons at all other than their card carrying members, which gives them that title. But we, we prefer to say that we're working to become Freemasons, not that we are Freemasons because I believe that's the challenge that we have is this is a life journey and you're working to become better uh, under the philosophies, principles, and tenets that we have. And it's a consistent work. It's not just a one and done or three degrees and done or a member of every appended body, then you're done. It's ongoing work. Well, that is something you bring up in, in Sins of Our Masonic Fathers, right? You use the great example of um, uh, music and, you know, it, Owning, a, owning an instrument or, or being a member of a musical academy doesn't make you a musician. It's actually about the work that you put in. And in the same way, you know, owning an, owning an apron or owning a dues card does not, you know, a mason make. It's about the work and effort that's put in, not just to acquiring that apron and dues card, but then, you know, maintaining maintaining uh, kind of the, the right to, to call yourself uh a mason 
you know, I think the title Mason, right? It's not one you can ever own. You just rent it out. It's like success. You just rent it. And, you know, the the payment is attendance every month type of thing, right? One way of looking at it, sure. Sure. I, I wonder, you know, you brought up a really good point. And I think that maybe that's why I do think every every generation probably thinks that they are the most unique and, and challenging and et cetera, et cetera. But I do think over the last, say, say several years, um, the you, you brought up the idea, we have to try to figure out, you know, what it is that the membership wants. And you kind of have to go with what the majority of active members want and try to provide that to a lodge. It seems like in uh, 2021, 2020, you know, uh, even a majority consensus is it just in society in general is incredibly challenging and difficult to to come by and i think that's true of the the masonic experience as well it seems that this is just based on my own research and, and my experience researching the last couple of boom peers as well as speaking to my father and grandfather who was a mason um it seems like there was at least this, a fair bit of uniformity in, in purpose when for new applicants and new masons, especially in, in the 1920s. And in Ontario, at least, the primary growth of Freemasonry in that time was veterans returning from the First World War. Uh, and so it's not, it's, I suppose it's not surprising that uh, you would see such uniformity of purpose. It seemed like every everybody who was joining at the time was doing so as a way to regain some of the, the fraternity um, that they experienced fighting in the war, as well as a way to support their communities. Uh, now, it seems that there's so many different reasons. The, the reasons for joining Freemasonry seem far more personal and far less based on community interest. Um, I'm just, I'm not sure if it's possible to find a a, a majority consensus amongst why somebody is a Freemason or what, what a Mason wants from, from his lodge. And I think that's the challenge we have going forward. You know, it's easy to govern and promote Freemasonry when there's a uniformity of kind of purpose to it, when everybody has their own reasons as to what it is and why they joined and what it means to be a Mason. Uh, that can be a little more challenging, I think. Well, I think you're right. Uh, and I think there's a way to approach that in what we teach in our lodges. If a man comes to Freemasonry and he's not sure what it is, but he's maybe read a little bit about it, or perhaps he has a relative who's been one, <clears throat> and, he, and he wants to pursue that to see if it's interesting. If he comes to a lodge and he's offered very little in the way of what Freemasonry is, he's rushed through three degrees, he gives back only a proficiency that is um, suitable to the individual opinion of that lodge, which could be anything. It could be a terrible proficiency to your lodge and a good proficiency to mine. So there's no uniformity there. There's, there's no way to really assess whether this is really in a man's heart or not until he behaves and, and um, has time to demonstrate that he is in pursuit 
of whatever it is he thinks Freemasonry is. But maybe that's the problem, Cameron. If we allow everybody to just have whatever they think Freemasonry is to be Freemasonry, then we don't have Freemasonry. Freemasonry is a very specific thing. It has an aim and purpose. And everything we do, if it's not going toward that aim and purpose, then it's really not Freemasonry. So if we don't really know what that is and we're not instructed in that when we come to lodge and it just becomes kind of a, let's get a guy through quick so he'll pay his dues. Let's get a guy through quick so we can come to a meeting. Um, let, let's get a guy in quick because we need this guy to help us over here for this event. If, if that becomes the goal, we're right back to just, let's get some more numbers because we just need more men. And that seems to be the, the uh, trumpet call in the past uh, 75, maybe 90 years in Freemasonry, is that every problem is solved by just needing more members. When really we don't know exactly how we're affecting the members we have, because only roughly 6 to 10% of them bother to be involved in Lodge. So that should tell us that we, we have somewhat of an issue on not only holding men's attention in what we claim and profess to be Freemasonry, but maybe what we're claiming and professing to be Freemasonry is not what every man wants. So I think it's good that we have a variety of types of lodges that practice everything from a very uh, strict form, malady involved in Freemasonry to a casual one. But again, that kind of contributes to let every man decide what Freemasonry is for himself. Uh, we wouldn't do that on many things. We don't let everybody decide for themselves what the use of this ink pen is. It, it has a purpose. It might be used for other things, but it has a central purpose. And in order to use it for anything, we ought to know what the central purpose of it is. And that ought to be what's taught. But we do a pretty good job on at least getting men to understand that this is a different kind of organization. But then as some men go through their career, they find out that it's not really that extraordinary sometimes. It devolves into uh, business meetings and reading minutes and brief discussions in the parking lot and some um, uh, effort to put on a proficient ritual. And there's a much more to it than that, as you know. In, um, in Ontario and in, in most jurisdictions, you know, one thing that uh, I've always struggled with uh, in Ontario, I'll, I'll use this example, is we have no um, attendance requirements. Uh, you know, you can join and miss 10, 15, 20 years of, of meetings and, and, and show back up again. Um, you know, the only requirement in terms of the only thing that, that a Mason owes to his lodge is his dues, uh, right? That's the only responsibility that uh, a Mason has towards his lodge. And however, the individual Masons in the lodge may feel about uh, brother so-and-so who's never in attendance or, you know, if he's an officer and fails to do his duties or attend for meetings, um, you're just kind of stuck, right? You, there's nothing that you can do. Uh, there's nothing you can do. Um, but there are other jurisdictions, the Philippines, for example, uh, and some Southern American jurisdictions where they do have attendance requirements, where you're required to attend uh, 
at least three meetings per year or else you're suspended for non-attendance. You know, I guess just my question, question for you is, the, there's, there's a lot of discussion and talk, especially when you, when people talk about, you know, we only have about a six to 10% ratio of active to inactive Masons. Um, you know, it seems to me that one way to battle that is to, to enforce some type of attendance requirement because that, you know, you're not, if no, if they're not showing up for an entire year, you're not losing their attendance, right? But it seems that part of the fear of not doing that is, or part of the fear of doing that is the fear of losing their dues. Uh, I just, I don't know, it's just, I think it goes into this idea of, you know, having 100 members on your role looks great, but if only 10 of them are showing up to a meeting, What's the, is that really better than say a lodge of 15 members and 12 are showing up to a meeting yeah. or even nine in terms of a meeting? And, and I think it's important what you talked about, about we need to be more careful about guarding the West Gate, about making sure people understand what it is they're, they're doing before they join. But there's also the problem of after they join, right? There, there's, there's a large swath of very inactive Masons who are really Masons in name only. And they just are stuck on our roles, and we can't seem to shake them off. Uh, I'm not. I'm just. What are your thoughts about not only an attendance requirement per se, but just the idea of having the responsibility? What does an individual mason owe to his lodge, as opposed to the other way around? Right. We all we always talk about what a lodge owes to its membership. But what does the membership owe to the lodge? And does that include attendance and, and proficiency and things like that? Well, as you've probably read in one of those books you have there, one, one thing I've written and said frequently is that in order for Freemasonry to mean anything to a man and he to it, he must spend some time with it. Now, Lynn Dumanall is a researcher in California, and she wrote a book um, years ago. Uh, that's one of the best books about what happened to Freemasonry in the last 200 years. One of the things that she writes is that it's hard to love a man's name on a membership roster. And think about what that means. Uh, if a man has not been to Lodge in 10 years or 15 years, do you feel connected to him just because he passed through an initiation? passing and a raising is he a mason well yeah we call him a mason and in our ritual in kentucky in the ea degree we call that man a mason 14 times in the ea degree after he's been obligated so yeah he's a mason but is he a freemason did he get everything he could possibly get out of three appearances and lodge to go through ritual to go out on his own without any further explanation or involvement and become a Freemason? I would submit that the answer is no and that he has to spend some time with it first of all. I don't know that making him by some requirement come to Lodge makes him absorb my Freemasonry. That kind of depends on what goes on in the Lodge. 
is there uh, a guarantee that he doesn't go off on his own and learn on his own and study and doesn't come to lodge, but evolves into a Freemason? Uh, yeah, it's possible that can happen. There's men who have done that because they didn't find what they were looking for in lodge, so they went on their own to find it. Were they guided by other older Masons, veteran Masons, who may have known more or have the ability to instruct? Sometimes perhaps they were probably not in many cases. Rotary requires attendance. Other civic clubs require attendance. It works for them, but we're not a civic club and we're not a social club. What we offer is something completely unique or should be. If a man doesn't have the interest in pursuing that, which can depend on what his lodge is offering, but if he doesn't have it in his heart to pursue that, he should go somewhere in another lodge where he can pursue it or ask somebody someplace else who is pursuing it to help him. But the guy who comes, sees, and leaves and marginally participates however you want to define that or doesn't participate at all, I believe it's questionable whether he's actually a Freemason. We'll have to acknowledge him as such if he pays his dues because that's our requirements and he can come back anytime and we should welcome him. But whether or not he's a learned Mason, a well-instructed Mason, or even gets it, it's kind of up in the air until his behavior shows that. So I don't, I don't know that a requirement to attend at this point in uh, American Freemasonry history would have that much of an effect. I, 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 would I would suspect it would have an effect in men leaving and going to another lodge maybe that didn't require it or a grand jurisdiction that didn't require it if they wanted to just maintain membership. But it all sounds good when you're going into it, but when you have to put time into it and find out that there is some work associated with being a Freemason, that's probably a deterrent to many people who perhaps had a different reason for coming to the fraternity. But isn't, isn't, couldn't that be a good thing, the, the deterrent aspect, uh, because, yeah. you know, de depending on, on I, if, I mean, I, it's, it's always kind of the, the, it's in Ontario, it's always kind of told as a joke. Um, you know, you only need to show up, you know, you, whenever I, a new guy comes in, he's interested and he says, what's the time commitment? They'll say, well, it's just once a month. And then you end up with a small percentage of people who are there every night of the week and the vast majority who you're lucky if they're, if they're there once a month, right? And, and I think that it all comes down to what the lodge presents. If you can hold a man's interest long enough, you might be able to keep him pursuing Freemasonry. But if you don't, what's his motivation for coming to lodge? What is it that attracts him there, that particular individual? Uh, that question has never been truly answered 100% across the board because so many come for so many different reasons. It's what they find, whether it attracts and it's a magnet to one of those reasons they may come, depends on the individual lives where they are admitted. I suppose you could also, I, I, another kind of question to ask is, what is his reason for maintaining membership without any any work or attendance but, but so you know he he loses a hundred bucks 150 bucks a year depending on what the dues are in ontario in ontario uh, the average dues price seems to be between 100 and 200 
uh, a Canadian per year. Uh, so, you know, he is paying that, that money sometimes after being chased down, sometimes it's just automatic, you know, it just, he sent it in online or whatever it is. So he presumably, he likes the idea of calling himself a Freemason, uh, at least to the extent that, you know, he's willing to pay a hundred dollars for that. Right. But beyond spending money, he doesn't have any interest in, in putting any actual work or effort into the craft. So then the, the question has to be asked, you know, what, what is he getting out of that card in his pocket? Is it just a matter of he feels good that he can call himself a Freemason? Uh, you know, never, I guess I always struggle. What, what is it, you know, you look at our membership roles in a lodge and it's like, I don't know this guy, but he's been a member for 10 years. I don't know this guy, but he's been a member. For, it's like, what exactly are, what are they getting out of it beyond the fact they can call themselves a, a Mason? And I guess if that makes them feel good, but it doesn't seem to be helpful to anybody, in my opinion. Well, another question is always interesting to ask, especially if, if we can find words ask in a lodge, no matter what the lodge offers, is what 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 is our purpose in Freemasonry? Now, you ask a, a random Mason that today, and most likely he's going to respond to make good men better, right? That's the pat answer. That's a marketing slogan. And it's true. But if we are to make men, good men, better, the real question comes down that we should self-examine is how do we do that? And what is required to do that? And are we doing it? That discussion can be endless. And that helps us also identify what we do in Lodge, what we don't do in Lodge, what we contribute to a man in Lodge, how many men are coming because we are doing those things. Have they become the majority? Do they change the culture of the Lodge? What is it that we do that specifically makes a good man better? That's, a, that's an unending question. And it should be examined constantly not just once, and then we go 10 more years before we ask that question in the lodge again. Looking uh, forward, I think you're right, and I think most people would agree. You know, membership, just number of members is, is not a particularly good metric by which to judge the success of Freemasonry. It, it does matter. I think you can't ignore completely, but it, it shouldn't be the primary gauge of a successful lodge or a successful jurisdiction. Um, but that then begs the, the question is, as we move forward, um, you know, how would you measure a lodge's success, uh, a district's success, and just in general, Freemasons, the success of Freemasonry? Uh, what, what type of things do you think need to happen to create a quote-unquote successful uh, Masonic experience or Masonic Lodge? Well, we'll have to go back and define what is a successful Masonic experience to each person. And again, I think it's defined by lodges. There are some lodges, uh, many lodges that I've been to whose success is defined by the number of men who consistently 
come together for the purpose of fellowship, for the purpose of learning, for the purpose of an experience that when you leave Lodge, you know it when you feel it. Uh, you probably have that where you know that tonight was worth my time. Tonight was valuable to me. I'm thinking about something now that I'll think about for three or four days or a week. This is influencing me. Men who have that, instead of coming, having the quick meal, doing the quick business meeting and leaving, do they really think that? Is that what they think is worth their time? Is that what they came to Freemasonry to do? Because you can do that in a lot of different clubs. But Freemasonry is supposed to offer more than that. So I think we, we have to define it about what it is a lodge de deems to be successful, not what we'd say all lodges should do or all lodges shouldn't do this. I think it comes down now because of the way we've unfolded and evolved in America particularly, is that we have so many views on what Freemasonry is and we've been unmoored for so long from its historical intent and purpose that it'll take a long time for us to collectively and uniformly come back to the center, wherever that center is. And ultimately it looks like if the past 60 years are prologue in our history of decline in membership is that we're going to be a very small organization in the future. And the smaller it gets, perhaps those who are truly committed to it will influence those who come in. But I don't think Freemasonry is going away. I don't think it's going to do much except get smaller. And we haven't tried that for a couple of centuries on getting smaller on purpose. Uh, and we're not doing it on purpose now. It's just happening either because of an external reason, but more importantly, reasons probably from the inside that we haven't accounted for. So the reckoning will come with just getting to be small again, reassessing, recalibrating, and seeing where we go in the future with uh, the men who are left standing. There's, and you've used this, you used this term in, in, in both of your books um, and in this conversation, the, 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 the value the, that a, a mason gets from his attendance. Uh, is it also, so there's the internal value. So this, there's this value which goes from the lodge to the individual. So the value the individual gets by his attendance at a lodge. But there's also the value that a lodge gets from a mason's attendance, and, and I worry that we fail to we, we don't do a very good job at necessarily explaining that that value. The classic example would be um, a, a degree, right? It can be very common to hear in Ontario. I'm not sure about Kentucky. Very common to hear a, a brother say, "Well, if I'm not part of the degree team, I'm not getting my degree." I don't want to just go and sit in the sidelines and, and watch, you know, the hundredth degree I've done if I have no part to do and, and um, you know, I'm not part of this at all. Uh, and I think we failed to explain the, express the value of like, well, you may not feel any value from being there and seeing this degree again, but it's the candidate's first degree and he's going to remember 
everybody who's there and everybody who took the time to be there when they could have been at home on the couch, whatever it is. And you may not feel that you gained anything by your attendance, but the lodge gained something by your attendance. The candidate gained something by your attendance. So just because you're bored, like just be quiet and be bored, it's fine. It'll mean something to the candidate to see you present, right? And it's important to also, as a lodge, talk to the candidate and say, you know, you should thank the degree team, but you should also thank everybody who's present because they took the time to support you in your, your journey. But I, I, I do think sometimes we fail to, to adequately, you know, Masons have this idea, well, they won't miss me if I'm not there because I don't have a part or I'm not an officer. And it's like, no, we will miss you. You may not be happy to be there, but we're happy you're there. And being part of a team, being part of a lodge, a family, sometimes it's not about whether you're happy to be there or not. It's about whether right. the other people are happy that you're there. Yeah. I think that's a service that you, you owe to the lodge. You, it may not be within the length of your cable told to come to lodge every single meeting, but I do think you have a responsibility as a Mason to participate. Now, whether you engage or not is something else, but you should at least put forth the effort to participate. And, you know, it's understandable sometimes why guys don't want to see that hundredth reenactment of the, uh, Iron legend or the or degree conferred because sometimes that works not that exciting to watch if it's not done properly and again that gets down to our individual what we're searching for individual do we do we just want to go to a lodge just because uh, it's another lodge and have an experience and leave with nothing or do we want to go and and see men perform with proficiency and commit to the idea that they are there to impress these ideals and and the structure of Freemasonry on a new candidate. Um, it can be tiring, of course, and it can be a learning experience every time when you're committed to the pursuit of Freemasonry. Yeah, I I think that's been been one of my struggles with with the craft and and something I've been trying to emphasize whether it be my own lodges or with this podcast um, it, it does seem like a lot of the advertising quote unquote for Freemasonry or when people discuss it it's always a personal uh, value driven proposition so I don't know if you I, I recently saw like um like not just a man, a Mason type of, of thing, which is a great, uh, not knocking that as a strategy, but the, it seems like so much of the emphasis of this is on, uh, you know, I joined Freemasonry and I made new friends and, and I experienced this and I experienced that and I enjoy my time um, as opposed to, uh, you know, joining Freemasonry is something I can do to make, somebody else's life better, to make the, the lodges better, to make a candidate's experience better, to make the community better. Uh, you know, joining Freemasonry is, is something that, yes, can be a, a self-improvement thing, but it can also be a, a, an exercise in 
community support or lodge support or candidate support, right? It's the, the value works both ways. It's yeah. it's an it's a a organization through which you can you know make the world a better place. Not necessarily through charitable works per se, though it can be that way. Not necessarily through through any formal charity or formal civic engagement, but just through the act of being part of a brotherhood. Um, I truly believe, you know, if anything that the world needs more of nowadays, it's brotherhood and it's it's consistency and purpose. And joining organizations uh, like the Freemasons and probably more though, so the Freemasons than any other group, it's a way to promote brotherhood and unity and, and all the things that we are sorely lacking. So I guess that's what I'd say is if you want to join Freemasonry, uh, you know, it's not just about the extent to which you will enjoy it and get something out of it. It's also about the extent to which you can improve other people's lives and make other people's lives better, including your lodge brethren, just by your attendance. Sometimes that's all it takes. Just being present makes their life better. I think to add to that, we the, the question comes is, uh, is Freemasonry supposed to just become what every man wants it? Or is every man supposed to at least find out what Freemasonry is and then determine if it's suitable for him? Opening it up for everybody to decide who becomes a member what Freemasonry is for themselves does not take us to the center of what our purpose is. Now, once you once you study, once you feel comfortable that you understand a purpose and a factual purpose, not the romantic purpose, and you decide, well, I like this, but I prefer this aspect of it more. There's nothing wrong with that. But at least try to get to the core, which brings me back to what I said earlier. For Freemasonry to mean anything to a man and he to it, he must spend some time with it. Yeah, no, I... Consistency of purpose is so important. I think you're absolutely right. I think we can't have this situation where where every every Mason is defining Freemasonry for for himself. You know, you you need you need some kind of, of consistency in how you view it. Otherwise, it it just how do you ever how do you ever organize a successful lodge meeting if everybody in the lodge has completely different views about why they're there and what it is to be there and what they should be doing. And exactly. I don't even necessarily worry so much. I mean, so there's, there's obviously going to be, you know, purpose that is just completely wrong that, you know, uh, we misses, misses the mark. And, but generally speaking, I do think, you know, if a, Master's in the chair and he's in the East and he said, this is the goal for the year. You know, it's up to the lodge to, to work with that master or, you know, to, to make that goal. You can't have 50 different goals for your year, that type of thing. You know, you, you need to be able to, to work within the confines of the lodge. Dan Kemper, your show, uh, presented a paper at the William O'Ware Lodge of Research uh, a week ago. And uh, it was called Men Without Chest. But at the end of his paper, Dan's point was, there is no such thing as my Freemasonry. There's no such thing as um, Kentucky Freemasonry. There's no such thing as New York Freemasonry, Ontario Freemasonry. There's only Freemasonry. And that's an excellent point. 
in this conversation. And how, and how wonderful is that of a sentiment too, to hear in, you know, you just go on the news and in Canada, it's noted there's plenty of divisions between the provinces and Ontario versus Alberta, you know, and, and obviously in, in the states here, a lot about red state, blue state, uh, and just how, how refreshing is it to hear about an organization where, you know, it doesn't matter if you're trying to think of like the reddest versus the bluest state, like if you're a Texas Freemason or a New York Freemason or a Los Angeles, whatever it is, you know, in that moment, you're not a, you're just a Freemason, right? How It's just such a refreshing thing to hear. And it's such an opportunity for the craft to, to, you know, promote just not in, in a formal way, just informally, just to promote these ideas of unity and brotherhood that you kind of need for any society to advance at all. There's a uh, couple of uh, writings by Dwight Smith, who was past Grand Master of Indiana. Uh, they become kind of classic Masonic uh, literature. He makes an excellent point that kind of winds our whole conversation is that there's really no problem in the organization of Freemasonry or the institution that can't be solved by practicing Freemasonry. And that's a pretty powerful statement. But of course, the part of that we have to add is that you have to know what Freemasonry is in order to practice it. If everybody has their own view and nobody agrees on what the historical intent and purpose is, that's going to be uh, rather chaotic. And I think we see a form and degree of chaos in Freemasonry because of that. So that leads to the, the obviousness question then, which we've been kind of dancing around a bit. Um, you know, what would you consider to be, or what is the historical um, intent of, of the craft? I think first and foremost is to bring men together with tolerance. Tolerance being in the forefront. We start there. If we aren't tolerant of each other, whether it's race, creed, religion, whatever it is, if we aren't tolerant and respect each other, how can we build anything else in Freemasonry? We can give it a lot of lip service, and a lot of lip service has been given to it in various ways over the centuries. But we bring men together and we bring them together under a certain philosophy, which starts with tolerance, in my view, and expands from there. When we discuss tolerance, um, I, I, I expand on that because that's another one of those those things that seems to be in short supply in many different ways. Um, I don't think tolerance is that you just learn to put up with everybody. I think there is a guideline, there is a rudder, of other principles that makes tolerance uh, a laudable pursuit, but so what are some of those other other principles? Well, like what, the principle, how do you work tolerance in with? Because obviously we can't tolerate anything in Freemasonry. So what is the 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 proper way to measure tolerance uh, in a lodge, for example? Well, I think reasonableness, maturity, commitment. Um, justice, faith, religion plays into it. We can't ever deny that, but whatever your religion is, 
doesn't mean that mine is wrong or yours is wrong or right. We need to be tolerant of each other's beliefs, but we do have to draw a line. And the line we haven't drawn is that Freemasonry is just for everybody. Just bring everybody in. It's good for the, it's good for the world. Well, theoretically and in a perfect world, I guess it would be, but we do have to know what Freemasonry is supposed to accomplish and how best to deliver the promise of making men wiser, better, and consequently happier. How do we fulfill that promise consistently? You know, one way I would say that Freemasons can, can work on that and um, advance in their Masonic career and learn more about some of those principles is by checking out uh, your books. Um, you mentioned they're on Amazon. I will throw the links in the description. Are you working on anything coming up, either any new publications um, uh, about Freemasonry or just anything through through your lodge or through Masonry in uh, Kentucky? We, uh, Dan Kimball and I, have just finished another book called uh, 21st Century Conversations in Freemasonry, A Candle in the Dark. Uh, and it's been released and it's available now. And it's, this is a different approach to Masonic writing because this grew out of the pandemic and it grew out of the advanced, the quickly advancing technology in masonry anyway, of uh, virtual meetings. And we've been on many virtual meetings. We were on virtual meetings before the pandemic. And this, this book is about a group of men who were meeting before the pandemic. And they were a group of men from around the world, uh, different levels, uh, different years of their Masonic career. And it's the conversations they had and the, the ideas and the questions they ask each other uh, wasn't any kind of a tiled meeting, of course, it was very casual. But these men all knew each other and have been doing this well before the pandemic came along. But the result of it uh, is a lot of dialogue, a lot of Masonic philosophy uh, dissected and examined. And it's, uh, it's a different kind of book. There's, uh, we haven't found anything that's close to uh, the way it's structured and what it uh, approaches uh, anyplace else. So that's available uh, now in the same place as Amazon, Barnes Noble, and other retail outlets. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a link to that in the description too. Uh, you know, I was a pleasure having Dan Campbell on the podcast uh, and yourself as well, having you on the podcast. So, you know, to, to see the work that you're working, to see that piece of work um, that you've worked on together, I'm sure it'll be very, um, it, you know, it's and it's on a, such a timely topic, right? The just the explosion of virtual Masonic education, virtual Masonic meetings, tiled or untiled. Um, did you experience a lot of, of virtual meetings in Kentucky? And and you guys are back to meeting in person now, correct? We are. We're back to meeting in person. But we started doing virtual education in May of 2020. And since May, we've had um, William O'Ware Lodge of Research, Lexington Lodge Number One, and the Rubicon Masonic Society have formed an alliance in coordinating these. Uh, we did them once. We did them every Monday night for a while, and we've uh, now doing them once a month. But we've, when we finish this year, which we are going to finish out 2021, we will have had 35 uh, structured virtual education that are not a casual. We ask men to wear a coat and tie. We do have a few rules of protocol, but we have a presentation each time, and the presentation is always highlighted by 
a great discussion afterwards. And our our uh, uh, sessions are all posted on YouTube. They can be found easily. And um, we, we have an average of around 60 to 70 men attend the meetings from all over the world, not just in the Kentucky area. Uh, and the postings, uh, as you probably find out in posting your podcast, the people, the number of people who look at those and watch them around the world is phenomenal. Do you suspect that uh, the virtual education will, will continue? Not just in Kentucky, but in general, even as most jurisdictions are, are in the process of reopening? Yeah, I think it'll always have a place because now that we've done it, we've also seen that it's uh, it's kind of less expensive sometimes to draw in the, the, the speakers and the presentation and the topics you want through a virtual podcast, which can be done in our lodge. We can take our lodge to ease or go to refreshment, and we can invite someone from Scotland, someone from California, to speak to us for an hour on a topic. Uh, I, I don't think it's ever going to go away. It may not be as pronounced as it has been during the pandemic because we're able to meet again and nothing substitutes for meetings and assembly. But uh, I don't think it's going to go away. I think we'll see it well into the future. And how have you found the return to in-person meetings in, in Kentucky? Um, I spoke to... Oh, I can't think of the brother's name now. Um, uh, I, I, I did an interview with the brother from North Carolina, uh, and he had, he had reported, unfortunately, that he found that um, the attendance had dropped uh, since they've opened back up in person from pre-pandemic levels. Um, I don't know if membership had dropped or just attendance. Um, he, he ascribed it to people that had just become kind of so used to you know, Freemasons to have it like anything else, right? It, it just got so, uh, it's been so long since they had a meeting uh, they just weren't used to going to meetings. And, and uh, so that was unfortunate to hear from North Carolina. Are you seeing the same thing in Kentucky or are your numbers staying the same? What What's the return to lodge been like? Well, the return to our lodge has been pretty consistent. Uh, other lodges and what other Masons have told me in their lodges throughout the state is they, it ranges from crowds to moderate crowd to the same guys who were coming before the pandemic. So there's probably, if there's ever going to be some research and study on it, there's probably going to be something interesting come out of what happened in the first year after the pandemic and masonry. Uh, but right now it looks like it's, it's just a gradual return. And of course, right now we're in the summer months and the summer months is the time when lodges attend at least that has been a, a tradition for the past hundred years in Kentucky, according to the records. So as fall gets here, we may see a, uh, an uptick. And as we go into 2022, we may see something um, more than an uptick. When do you think it's possible to have another roaring 20s type situation? I know we just talked about, you know, the, the dangers of, of membership increasing without paying due diligence to Masonic education and, and actually educating members, but just from a, a purely numbers perspective. Well, let, me ask, uh, let me ask you this in response to that question, Cameron. Do we want 
an influx of a couple of hundred thousand more men in masonry if we don't do anything more with them than we have for the past 60 years? What benefit is it other, other than adding to the coffers? Well, I, I don't disagree, but you know, if, if only you and I ruled the Masonic world, uh, I guess I'm just more asking in just in terms of, of just your, your, if you had a crystal ball, you know, because I've heard, I've heard some, some people in Masonic circles say the parallels between the 1920s and the 2020s, you know, we're both coming off of um, uh, Spanish flu and then COVID, we've had overseas wars, there's things like that. And so there's so many parallels. Um, there's probably going to be an economic boom period. So a lot of Masons uh, I've talked to are expecting to see uh, a lot of new applications and new applicants coming through the doors. And other Masons, such as myself, I'm more maybe pessimistic or optimistic, depending on your view. Uh, I just think 2020 is so different from 1920 that I, I don't see us repeating the pattern of the 1920s in terms of just applicants coming through the doors. Um, I think you're but right. I think what you're saying, sorry, I think what you're saying though is a good point and something we need to keep in mind, which is if, if I'm wrong and if we do have an influx of new applicants, right, we can't just be, oh, we have an applicant, we need to get them in, we need to get their dues. We need to be very careful and not treat, you know, a couple hundred thousand new applications as automatically a good thing, right? it's more complicated than just that. We need to be more cautious perhaps than they were in the 1920s. We have to keep in mind too, that uh, Freemasonry is not as well known today as it was in the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. So are you, are you on the, the side of, do you, do you think we're going to see an influx of applications or do you think um, uh, our application rate will stay probably the same? Well, if there, I don't, I don't know, but if there is an, an increase in applications and admittance, I hope they are in lodges that can retain them and teach them what the historical aim and purpose of Freemasonry is. And maybe that's the ultimate lesson, right, of this podcast and, and your work is, um, and that can be applied to any, any lodge, any district, any grand lodge, right? It's, Everything, everything cycles, everything cycles, right? I'm sure there will come a time if Freemasonry holds on long enough when we do see a, a, a you know, a rapid increase in our number of applications coming through the doors. Um, and it's just, you know, you, you provide a very clear and stark warning of what can happen when um, we get so excited about new applicants, we don't do our due diligence masonically about the vetting process, about educating the applicants, and about we we focus all our energy on um, getting an applicant in, but we don't focus any of our efforts on retention. And the results are the the, the inevitable bust. It's as equally as important as continuing to have fresh membership so the fraternity can perpetuate. Yeah. Then. Let's that let that be the lesson of, of this podcast because uh, I think it's a very good one. Is don't just focus on getting the applicants; focus on retaining your members is as important. Um, I'm proud to say that I am fully vaccinated and got my second shot. Got my two weeks, which means um, I am looking at traveling once again. Mm. I would love to get the chance to to visit uh, 
Kentucky. Uh, if I if I find my way down in in, in Kentucky, um, any Masonic sites I should be checking out. Anything happening Masonically, events coming up, or even just cathedrals, you know, Scottish Rite stuff. Any just anything uh, that you would you'd recommend, or it doesn't even have to be Masonic. Just what makes what makes Kentucky a great place to visit? Should I make it down there? Well, that'll depend on where you're from in Kentucky and how long you've been in Kentucky. But uh, uh, depending on the time of the year, of course, uh, Kentucky Derby in May is always an attraction. And there's races at Keeneland here in Lexington that occur in the uh, fall and in the spring uh, for a week uh, that are always huge attractions if you haven't been to thoroughbred racing. But uh, usually there's always something going on across the state in Masonry, whether it's a uh, one of the appended bodies uh, or just regular lodge meetings. But if you see that you're coming here to Kentucky sometime, Cameron, please, please be sure to let me know. And we'll make sure that if you want to visit lodges or if you want to visit our lodge or be a part of something that's going on at the time, we'll make sure to 